welcome and thank you for listening to the Dr. Mom Sage Advice Podcast. Are you a single mom who is tired of feeling overwhelmed by doing it all? Have you been asking yourself, what is my real purpose outside of motherhood and my career? Are you tired of yelling, feeling mom guilt at the end of the day? If you're ready to go from chaos to confidence in your mindset and in parenting, then this is the place for you. Here we are authentic, transparent, and frankly, we're here to burst all of those mom guilt bubbles and empower you to take back control of your life so you can go from just surviving in motherhood to thriving and walking confidently in your best purpose-filled life God intended for you. I'm your host, Dr. Catricia, a board-certified bilingual pediatrician. I'm also fellowship-trained in pediatric urgent care medicine. That's just my fancy title for the weekdays, but 24-7, I'm the proud single mommy of my little wild mini-me toddler. I'm also a postpartum depression survivor. Now, I'm on a mission to empower other single moms to take back control of their life. Through candid conversations, we will learn, be encouraged, inspired, and committed to making practical changes so we can be our best selves for the queen who reigns already inside of us. So sit back and relax, mommy. This is your time to unwind. Go ahead, grab your favorite drink. Pour me one too, queen, because it's time for our girl talk. Let's talk about all things motherhood, mindset, and even medicine. No, not like medicine, medicine, but you know, remember, I'm a pediatrician. So I'm gonna go ahead and give you some pediatric tips on how to parent, right? I hope that you love listening to and learning from the podcast. But please remember, it's not intended to be a substitution for a physician-patient relationship. I queen. If you're ready, I'm ready. Let's go. Hey, queen. Welcome back. And on this episode, we're talking about all things COVID-19 vaccinations and children. So at the time of the release of this episode, we are about almost one week out from the recent information that was released from the CDC, as well as the FDA and the ACIP, who are the governing body of all immunizations um, in the United States. And they went ahead and approved that we could have emergency use authorization of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccination, which vaccinates you against the SARS-CoV-2 virus illness that causes COVID for now, children's ages 12 through 15, because previously Pfizer was granted authorization to be used for adults um, as young as starting at age 16. And so in this past week, they they had continued their studies since then, obviously, in our children and adolescents. And in this past week, they were granted use to be able to start using it in this particular population. So I want to just go ahead and let you guys know that this recording is to give you a snippet summary, try to put it in layman's term and talk to you mommy to mommy so that you can make an informed decision about what you would like to do for your child, adolescent, as you move forward and as we continue to move forward in this pandemic, okay? Remember, this is not medical advice. This is Dr. Sage mom advice. (laughs) And I'm talking to you as a mommy who also happens to be a pediatrician and just wants to empower you to always make the best decision for yourself and for your family. So let's go and do, where should we start? Let's start with some facts, okay? So we know more than we knew last year about COVID, the illness, which is caused by SARS-CoV-2, the virus. 
And this particular virus is in a group of viruses called coronaviruses. It's in a family of coronaviruses. So coronavirus is not, the family is not new to us, but the SARS-CoV-2 is a novel new type of virus within that family. So we knew a lot about types of coronaviruses previously. So things like MERS um, that happened previously, as well as um, some other illnesses that have occurred in other countries that didn't necessarily cause a pandemic, but basically the research started with those types of viruses years ago, okay? So where are we now? There's still that is a lot that is unknown about this virus, but what we did know within like the first month or two, if we look at the timeline, like once it was announced that this was an outbreak in Wuhan, China, in December of 2019, I think by like the end of January, if not early February, they were able to sequence the whole genome of this particular virus. So what is the genome? Let's just give some plain terms. The genome is like the genetic instructions to code what you need, what you want, right? So we're all made up of DNA. My DNA is half of my father's and half of my mother's, okay? So when I was on my IG Live last week, if you guys happen to catch that, I kind of gave an illustration of genome as thinking of it as being the alphabet, the English alphabet, right? We have 26 letters. And if I want to code for Apple, I need, how many letters do I need? Oh gosh, why did I pick Apple? Can't do the math. APP, that's three. So I, I need five letters, right? Well, I actually need four letters, but two of the same. So I can't spell Mississippi from those five letters that I pulled, those four letters that I pulled, right? But I can code for Apple, okay? Stay with me. You're like, what does Apple and Mississippi have to do anything with COVID-19 vaccines? Girl, I'm, I'm gonna get there. Stay with me. So with this particular virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the way it's causing illnesses at such a crazy alarming rate has to do with r not. That's math. We'll talk about that later. And it also has to do with how it's gaining entry into our cells, okay? So you remember from your old science class, you know, viruses need a host. They need a vector. So whether that's an animal or that's a human cell, it needs somewhere to survive. Now, there are some viruses that can have a period where they're able to still be alive on like nosocomial, like things like, you know, door handles. Hint, the reason why we are washing our hands and using those special gadgets to open up doors. I don't know about you, but I've always been a person who like legit would grab my shirt or my sleeve to open a door. Even my elbow, y'all, and my four-year-old is like doing the same, except for she can't really do it, but she can touch the elevator buttons with her elbow. I'm like, the way they mimic our behaviors is insane. So how does SARS-CoV-2 get into our cells? Well, the spikes, that's where the word corona comes from because it's like a crown. The crown of spikes is what attaches to a receptor on our cell. So think of the spike like a key, and the key has to enter the lock to get inside of the cell, the door. The lock is our receptor, okay? The vaccine technology for Pfizer and Moderna are mRNA vaccinations, so it's not DNA. They are not presenting the full genome of this virus into your cell, so you cannot get COVID after having the vaccination. That is not how it works, okay? So it's not a live vaccination that they're giving you. What they're doing is coding for the specific part of that genome that only codes for the spike protein, okay? It's showing you the mRNA of that particular part. So back to Apple, Mississippi. In Mississippi, 
spells out the whole virus. That's the genome, right? I can't make the whole genome with those letters a, P, P, L, and E. I can't spell Mississippi. All I can get is apple, which is the part that codes for the spike protein, right? So let's use a better example. If coronavirus, coronavirus is the whole genome, C-O-R-O-N-A, you can spell it out. If I need all those letters, this is hypothetical, you guys. This is not real science. If I need all those letters to code for the whole virus, to create that virus, to copy that virus, right? Then I need all of those letters for the whole genome. But the vaccine technology is not doing that. It's only coding for the part that has to do with the spike protein, because that's where we're going to target the antibodies that your body makes to fight against the actual virus. OK, so when you get the injection of the vaccine, we'll get there a little bit later how that works. You will eventually make antibodies to the spike part of the virus. Why is that important? Because now if I come through with like, I don't know, a key eater, making something up, you guys, like, but think of the, like the antibody as being the key eater. It's now going to attach to the key. Remember, the key is a spike protein who can't get into the lock. The lock is your receptor on the cell. The cell is the door. So if my spike protein key cannot get inside the door and unlock it, it can't get into my cell and cause havoc and cause me to become ill like it has been doing to people who contracted this virus prior to being vaccinated. Okay? Are you with me? I hope that you are. That was a lot. Okay. So let's talk about where we are now as far as infections and cases. Okay? So here's some facts about the illness. There have been um, more than 1.5 million cases to date as of the recording of this episode for our adolescent populations ages 12 to 17. And 13,000 of those cases have required hospitalizations. That's more hospitalizations for a COVID illness in comparison to all previous flu epidemics that there have been and the United States, right? So even like the flu epidemic of H1N1 in 2009, if a lot of you guys remember that. So what it's showing you is that this is pretty contagious and the side effects, not the side effects, excuse me, but the symptoms that happen with COVID-19 illness, like I know initially we were saying, oh, it's not, you know, it doesn't affect the children as much. They may be asymptomatic carriers, but it still does affect them. And this population of children right now are the most vulnerable because think about it, as more adults are being vaccinated, that's less vectors, less hosts, less cells who don't have access, that they can't access the lock to for the virus to go in and use its key to open the door, right? So whose doors are not being protected right now? Our children, most of them, because they have not been vaccinated. So since the emergency use authorization to use Pfizer in December, they have continued their studies, and now they've been studying the population of children from ages 12 to 15. And they study over 2,500, so a little over, like, definitely over 2,000 children, um, diverse population, just like in the adult studies. And let's just plug something here right there. That is so important, you guys, because we know in history as it relates to the hesitancies in our brown and black communities because of the unfortunate um, 
experiments that have happened and the unfortunate um, circumstances as it relates to medical care and not being not consenting patients and not being forthcoming and not providing them with um, knowledge relating to the studies that they were rolling in or if they even told them what they were doing you know um, that has caused a lot of persons in the communities to be very hesitant about receiving any information which is totally to be understandable the thing about this vaccination trial study, number one, I want you to know that no skips were stepped, excuse me, no steps were skipped at all. So people are thinking, how in the world could you make a vaccine so fast and you haven't even had a chance to study it? I'm going to be frank, I thought that too, but I realized or had to be informed and after studying and, and learning more that this technology is not new. This mRNA type of technology of delivering, uh, of creating a vaccination by delivering the mRNA instead of a lipid, lipid meaning fat. Is not new. It's been it's been around for about ten years, and they've been studying this with the MERS virus and with in, in animal studies as well. So they were already kind of they. I'm saying they, meaning the researchers and the scientists were already ahead of the game as it relates to developing this vaccination, which is really a blessing in disguise, you guys. Like we didn't even make it through a whole year of the pandemic before we had a vaccination. I think that's uh, like excellence to show like how amazing science is um and where how far we've come you guys from like women used to be having to you know give birth without any anesthesia or people you know children dying in childbirth because no access to childhood vaccinations or even simple things like penicillin so we've come so far in regards to modern technology and the advancements in our medical system so i when I read the initial studies of the demographics for the studies that included the adults, so 16 above um, patients, both in the um, the vaccine group and in the placebo group, placebo meaning they didn't receive the vaccine, they it was diverse. You know, there was representation from all types of ethnic backgrounds, diverse in regards to ages, and that's important. It wasn't just who they enrolled to be diverse, but also the people who were studying and like a part of the the board of investigations to study the vaccine, the efficacy, the safety profiles during the trials, during all the different one, two, three phases, as well as afterwards. Like they're also a group of diverse people. And that's so different than where we used to be decades ago when the medication may be or vaccination may be created, but it was based on a very um, inconclusive non-inclusive group of patients, patients who all look the same or have the same demographics regarding ages um, and ethnicity and race. So that's different this time around, which is great because it's like you want to make sure that you know that this works for you when you may not look the same as the physician or the nurse practitioner who's recommending it to you, right? You want to trust and know that this vaccination is going to be effective for you and your genes and your cells and the type of cells that you have because we all have different DNA, right? Okay. So Let's talk about what R not is and why we need vaccination to create herd immunity. Okay, herd immunity is basically saying that like when there's a certain population of patients who have been vaccinated, their antibodies, <laughs> their vaccination status then protects those who are not immunized. Okay, think of your babies who are born. They, you know, a lot of babies don't have, you know, end up having illnesses like whooping cough or pertussis or um, varicella, which is your chickenpox vaccination, because of the herd immunity that has been created by the people who were born before them, by the people who live in their family, because they've been up to date with their vaccinations, and that's what protects them. So this is what we're trying to reach 
here in the United States and across the globe is herd immunity, right? But herd immunity is going to depend on how many people are vaccinated and also depends on how infectious this virus is. So that is determined by a mathematical equation called r naught which is, I'm a geek, so go ahead and flow with me for a minute, okay? So r naught is the mathematical calculation of reproduction and trend, the transmission rate, okay? So an r naught, for instance, if it's less than one, what that means is that each existing infection, so if I come down with COVID, each existing infection, so I'm infection number one, can cause less than one new infection, okay? So if I'm standing around five people and I happen to sneeze, then the rate of the transmission and how infectious it is and contagious it is to passing it to each other is pretty low because the R naught is less than one, okay? So the disease will eventually die out because why? It doesn't have as many hosts to survive, okay? Versus an R naught that is greater than one, there tends to be this exponential growth curve, right? Do you guys remember last year when we were talking about flatten the curve, flatten the curves, you know, Stay six feet apart, wear your mask because we need to flatten this curve. That's the curve we're talking about. It's a curve of transmission of how fast it can reproduce and go from host to host to host, right? So an R naught that is greater than one tends to create exponential growth, whereas an R naught that's less than one tends to go towards um, the end of an outbreak, meaning that you're flattening the curve and you're sloping down. Um, so the R naught can change, it's not constant. And it's gonna be based on obviously the population um, within the geographic area. So, you know, people are vacationing, then R naught is gonna increase, right? Remember all those people who were going down for spring break to Florida? Um, the, uh, the thought of the R naught, I think the, the number around March uh, this year um, was around three. And I think at the start of, if I'm not mistaken, at the start of, the pandemic, I feel like the R not they were predicting anywhere to be from like two to seven, you guys. Okay, so let's compare the R not of SARS CoV 2 virus to other viruses and illnesses that we're aware of or have uh, have been familiar with. Okay, so H1N1 that's a 2009 flu epidemic, its R not was anywhere from 1.46 to 1.5. Measles, okay, we have a vaccination for measles. It's R not is 12 to 18. That's why we say measles is very contagious. Like you, if you suspect a measles case in the hospital, like you definitely want to go in there and full PPE, having your face covered. I mean, it's a droplet uh, transmission as well. And that's what I forgot to mention that also plays a role in like the R not is like the type of transmission. So if something is only, you know, droplet, then of course, if I'm standing, if I'm here at my computer, like, speaking in this podcast, then you obviously are not at risk because you're not near my droplets, right? Versus if now I leave from speaking here and go outside and just happen to be breathing the same air as the person who's riding down the sidewalk on their bicycle. And even though we're across from each other on opposite sides, like and it's an, if it's an airborne um, illness like tuberculosis, then the R not, you know, the rate of transmission and contag or being infectious is higher. Okay, so seasonal flu, it's R not, it's 0.9 to 2.1, and then polio, which thank God has been eradicated because of vaccinations and vaccine campaigns, and because we were able to reach herd immunity, it's R not is around five to seven. Okay, um, so again, R not is going to depend on the geographic region and 
where do we need to be in order to reach herd immunity? Well, we need to be at about 71 to 84 percent of the population being vaccinated. Again, herd immunity, meaning that the people who are vaccinated now protects those who are not vaccinated, unvaccinated, or cannot be vaccinated. So there are children who are less than 12, are newborns, um, are people, are um, persons who have reactions to, had anaphylactic reactions to components inside of the vaccine previously. They, they wouldn't be able to be vaccinated, right? Okay. So we've talked about R not. We talked about where we are in regards to the population. So right now, um, COVID cases for children in our adolescent um, population, they make up about 12%. And they unfortunately also make up about 0.10% of the deaths of the COVID-19 illness during this past year. So for our children, when they were when the children were studied in the Pfizer vaccine study, they study children ages 12 to 15, and they separate them into groups. So the group that had the vaccine and the group that were in the placebo group. And there were no cases of illnesses in the vaccine group a month out after receiving their vaccinations. So they need two doses. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And it separated three weeks apart. So the placebo group did not receive any vaccinations. And there were up to 18 cases of children who did come down with the COVID-19 illness a month out after they finished the study of the initial clinical phase. So what does that mean? They saw a 100% efficacy rate for the children who were vaccinated, that they were able to get antibodies to fight off any potential infection that they came in contact with in the community. So what the vaccine clinical trials did not study, though, however, particularly in the adult population, is that if they were asymptomatic carriers. So they weren't going and testing them every week to see they have a COVID-19 illness. They were looking for symptoms and they were looking at their antibody production, right? And there's particular antibodies that we look at, like so like the neutralizing antibodies, right? Because a lot of parents will ask, have asked, well, if they've been ill before, do I still need to give them a vaccine? And that's a great question. And the answer is yes, because the antibodies that you make after a natural infection are different than the antibodies that you would make after having a vaccination. And again, we're still studying the, the antibodies and the difference between the two natural infection, as well as like receiving, um, so at the end, the vaccination. But what it looks like is that there is a mix when you are ill. And what we like to see are more the neutralizing type of antibodies. Those you, you are going to get 100% when you get the vaccination. And those seem to protect more against the COVID-19 illness and its sequelae than do the other antibodies that you make from a natural, um, recovering from a natural infection. Okay. So what are the safety profiles? Um, they were the same as far as side effects, meaning like the most common one would be is pain at the injection site, sometimes a little muscle acheness, but the side effects were exactly the same as the adults. And the safety profile is exactly the same as the adults as well. So what are some other questions that parents have had? Well, questions would be like, what about if there's a mixture of these antibodies, then how will I know if it's going to ward off future viruses? And that's a great, or future potential to get um, COVID-19 illness in the future. And that's a great question. Again, still a lot unknown about this particular illness, but right now where the studies um, stand, they're still obviously studying that original group of people who were vaccinated prior to the 
emergency use authorization that was granted in December, and they're following that, and they're going to follow their safety profile for years to come. But right now where we stand, we're definitely thinking that it's up to a six-month protection period for immunity, in addition to the other strains that have since come out out of UK and out of South Africa, Brazil, like we those B variants, we do also believe that the virus, excuse me, the vaccine protects against those strains as well. Okay. So can your child get the vaccination if they're acutely ill? Our recommendation is that if they have a mild like upper respiratory infection, cough, cold, or not having fever, then by all means definitely you can give the, them the vaccination. If they're having fever or if they're having symptoms of COVID or they've been tested positive for COVID, then the recommendation is for them to finish that quarantine period of isolation and then get the vaccination afterwards, okay? Because remember, the vaccine is going to give you the neutralizing antibodies, which is what we want, um, versus the other antibodies, um, a mix of the other antibodies that you get from after having the infection, okay? So another question that we hear often is, if you're going to get the vaccine, can you get other vaccines at the same time or do you have to wait? And the answer is right now for children, because we know children are um, usually on a schedule to get different vaccinations for school at certain ages. And the answer is, we do like to see that there's no co-administration, meaning don't get two vaccines at the same time and also to separate vaccines by two-week period. So make sure that they didn't have any vaccinations two weeks prior and they don't have any vaccinations two weeks after, okay? So two types of mRNA vaccines are on the market right now, and that's Moderna and Pfizer. Um, Moderna is still for ages 18 and above, but they have been studying um, children who I think they're in their adolescent um, group right now studying. And Pfizer is now moving their study, their clinical trials to study children who are less than 12 years old at this point. Okay, so let's move on to the different types of vaccine technology. So I've been talking to you guys about nucleic acid or mRNA um, vaccinations. There are other types of vaccine technology, meaning like how we deliver the vaccine into our body. And another type is protein subunits. So basically, you take a part of the virus. Um, there are pharmaceutical trials out there currently to develop COVID-19 vaccinations for using this type of technology. Another way is through a viral vector. So again, a vector meaning like the host is kind of like the transportation to drive, um, whether it's a part of the, the DNA or a protein subunit into your cells so your cell can see it and recognize it as being foreign and then start the antibody process. So viral vectors, they use a different type of virus, um, such as like adenovirus, which is like a common cold. You cannot get the adenovirus through this type of technology. Um, it's basically, again, being the transportation to deliver a part of the COVID, the SARS-CoV-2 virus into your body so your cells can see it and start the antibody process. This type of technology is being used by Johnson & Johnson. Then another type of technology is the whole virus. So you basically give a weaker version of the virus so that you can um, get an antibody response. So think of things like when we, you get a live vaccine. So like flu shots, the polio, measles, those are examples of whole viruses. So 
the vector virus, um, it does not contain the virus that causes COVID. So it does not contain the SARS-CoV-2. Again, it's giving you a, a subtype of the virus, so a portion of the virus. It does not make you sick, nor does the virus vector, like the adenovirus, that delivers the instructions make you sick as well. What it's doing is teaching your body how to make this spike protein so that you can make antibodies to spike protein. Remember, the spike protein is the key, and the key can only make you sick if it can unlock the door and get inside and take over the the um, contents inside of your cell. So nucleic acid mRNA types, again, your Pfizer and your Moderna, what they're doing is delivering a specific set of instructions to our cells in the form of mRNA. Our cells make the specific protein that we need for our immune system to recognize if we were to be exposed to this virus in the community as a natural infection. mRNA, it's like, Think of it as like getting an email instruction of a recipe and the recipe has instruction of like how to make strawberry donuts. I don't know. We just went to the strawberry farm. So strawberry donuts, right? It's the original recipe. But then your computer deletes it or you walk away and your computer um, dies and you didn't save the email that you were trying to type out for your friend to get the strawberry donut recipe, okay? Um, but you have it memorized in your head because you're like, oh, I remember, you know, there's like seven steps and first I started with strawberries and then I ended up with the donut somehow. So it is that's what's happening when the vaccination you're being given the vaccine in the mRNA form. The mRNA gets um your cells see this, they're like, what is this? We've never seen this before. And they immediately like create this immune response and start developing antibodies. And then once they do, they go and chew up that mRNA and like basically they're deleting it and getting rid of it. Okay. mRNA is labeled, so it has to be delivered in a lipid system so that once it leaves the vaccine form and goes into your cells, it can it stays um, long enough alive so that it can make it into your cells for your cells to have an antibody response, right? So that's why it's, um, it's packaged inside of a lipid system. It gets injected, and then our macrophages, which are like the Pac-Man cells of our body, go and eat the mRNA. They're like, this doesn't belong here. Don't like it. Never seen it before. We're going to go ahead and chew this up. And as is reading the message of the mRNA, the mRNA, remember, has given it the instructions or the email to code for the spike protein on SARS-CoV-2. So that's all it's doing. That's all it knows how to make is antibodies to the spike protein. It is not your cells are, it's not DNA that's being delivered. So your cells are not creating DNA for the whole genome of the virus and nor is it going into the DNA of your cells at all. So it, the macrophages, the Pac-Man, start eating it up. And afterwards, now you have this memory of creating these antibodies now to the virus, excuse me, now to the mRNA that it was exposed to. So what happens is the second time around, when you get this booster of a shot three weeks later, if it's Pfizer, four weeks later, if it's Moderna, your body has a more of an immune response because like, oh, already has antibodies to what it's seen before. And that's why sometimes people are saying after their second shot, they do feel a little more fatigue or may have some kind of like flu-like symptoms for a few days after. For me personally, I did not have that other than I was really sleepy, but I didn't have any other symptoms. I kind of was hoping so because I could be off from work, just putting it out there, but it didn't happen. So for the majority, usually you do fine. Um, maybe some pain at the injection site, which I never had, um, and then some fatigue is what happened 
for a lot of people, okay? So that is how the vaccine technology works for mRNA nucleic acid vaccine vaccines, which again, are Pfizer and Moderna. So Moderna at this time has been approved for only ages 18 and above. You need two doses separated four weeks apart and Pfizer, as of last week, you guys, has been approved for ages 12 to 15 in addition to um, already being approved for ages 16 and above, okay? So last couple points, we'll talk about what are some contraindications and where do you need to get this vaccine and what do you do once you get the vaccine? So contraindications would be if you have a severe allergic reaction, we're talking anaphylaxis, symptoms of my throat is itchy, I'm vomiting, I have swelling to my lips, swelling to my tongue, I can't breathe type of reactions after previous injections of components of the vaccine, okay? Um, or, so yes, that's that will be contraindications, okay? So precautions would be someone who has a history of allergic reactions to other vaccines. So maybe a rash or maybe some other adverse reaction that they had to a different type of vaccine. So the people who have contraindications should not get this vaccine. The people who, have who are following their precautions should have just a prolonged observation period. Everyone has to be observed after the vaccination is usually 15 minutes. So wherever you go to get your vaccination, they usually would have like a, a separate area for people to sit afterwards to be observed. Um, wherever you're going, they definitely have e-kits. So those are your emergency kits that have epinephrine, Benadryl, oxygen, AEDs on site. Um, God forbid if there was a, an emergency or anaphylactic reaction. And the people who have a history of precautions, it is advised that they need a prolonger, they, excuse prolonger, that's not a word. They need to have a longer prolonged observation period of 30 minutes um, and probably in the setting of their doctor's office or their allergist office, okay? Um, do know that these two vaccinations are not interchangeable. So if you start with one, you need to get your second dose with the same um, brand as well. Um, and what happens if you miss a dose? Well, there is a grace period up to six weeks. Like you can go ahead and get still get the second dose. You don't have to repeat the series over. And again, it's important that you get both doses to have the full immunity response that you need. That's how the studies were. Um, that's how the trials were studied. And when people say, well, when do I expect to have full immune response? Um, and it's usually, um, I read that it, it's, going to be around two to three weeks after the Pfizer, the second dose of the Pfizer, and closer up to a month after the second dose of Moderna. And that's it, you guys. That's all I have for you. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please go ahead and leave a review, share it with your other mom friends that you know who may um, be asking questions and really don't have all of the answers that they need at this time to make the best decision for if they're going to move forward with getting the vaccination for their child. I hope that you guys continue to listen to this podcast. And as always, please, please, please send me a DM or an email. You can find the information in the show notes to go ahead and leave your suggestions of other medical topics that you would like for me to talk about. Because remember here on the Dr. Mom Sage Advice podcast, we're talking about all things motherhood, medicine, and mindset. I can't wait for you to listen to the next episode. In the meantime, take care of yourself. And remember, give yourself more grace because you are amazing the way you are.